0: I just wanted to tell you why we had a snowstorm. <laughs> <laughs> so I could have time to prepare this message. Um, it's funny, I, it, it took four hours to drive home Wednesday, and Thursday I decided to work from home, so that was well, and um, Friday I decided to work from home, and I, I really did work. I did, did. I did real work, logged on and had <laughs> meetings and phone calls and that sort of thing. But not having to travel back and forth and worry about all that, it gave me some time to really try to let the Scripture um, find a place in my heart. And, and the more I studied, I thought it would be easier. And actually, it was just the opposite. The more I studied it, the more difficult it became to try to really grasp this. And, and so we're continuing this multi-year study of Philippians. I won't tell you the last time I spoke on Philippians, but uh, we talked about Philippians two five through eleven. Remember that, and it starts out. This message is directed to the community of believers at Philippi, uh, not just to each individual in the community. It was really a, it was a letter to the community you know, as a as a group as a whole. And it's important to realize this as we consider each verse, because when he says, be of the same mind, well, if you're just one single person, be of the same mind doesn't make much sense. You've only got one mind. So when you speak to a community and he says, be of the same mind, and it's almost like the letter is looking at each one of us in our eyes, how do you do that? You know, how does Randy and Wayne be of the same mind with me or with or great. How does that happen? He goes on and says, Have the same love. Mm-hmm. To be in full accord. To not act out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility to count others as more significant than yourself. So the more I thought about this, the harder it got. Um, to look to the interests of others. To empty yourself. To take a role of the servant. And then as the example, Paul presents Jesus himself as the roadmap. He's the he's the brochure that says, This is where we're going, and this is how you get there. It's like it looks like this. And it talks about Jesus, how he laid down his life, how he died on the cross, how he took the form of a servant and gave himself. And then how God highly exalted him and glorified him and proclaimed that one day coming, that every knee of every creature that's ever been created or will be created, will bow and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is our example. Authentic Christian living seeks to always obey Jesus and live in such a way that imitates Him. Paul exhorts us here to have the same mind as Jesus in how we serve others. He is saying that we must have the same goal as Jesus and not seeking our own interests in a way that denies the good of others. So, Father, already we can see that this letter written from a man in prison challenges us. Who are we? What, Lord, what is in your mind concerning the body of Christ? And Lord, we just pray that you would make room in our hearts now for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at uh, two verses 11 through 18. I'm going to read this and then we're going to go verse by verse through it. This is out of the ESV. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, Likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Hmm. Okay. You know, you can take a surface view of that. Makes good sense. It's quite challenging. And you start thinking, there must be a good way to interpret this that makes it sound more applicable to the modern ear. <laughs> Maybe a cool hip version of, of what this really means. But I I couldn't I couldn't think of one. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't really think of one, Greg. And I was, I was. Let's just, let's just take it from how it's written. Therefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. How many times have you heard that? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It doesn't say work for your salvation work out your salvation. Now that salvation has come, how do you work it out? Obedience to God's word is an essential part of imitating Jesus. Just as Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, so all those who follow Jesus must pattern their lives after His and submit to the will of God. And what is this will of God? That we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this working out does not mean signing a card, raising a hand, walking an aisle. Our salvation is found in possessing a real, living, saving faith that unites us to Christ. We're united to Him by faith. And preserves us and shows its life through the works of repentance and confession and service to God and neighbor. None of these works gets us into heaven. For only the perfect righteousness of Christ which we receive by resting on him alone by faith alone gives us access to the Father. Yet those who are resting on Jesus alone will persevere in faith. They'll demonstrate their faith by their works. This is just working out. They they will repent when they fail. They will serve by the power of the Holy Spirit. They will always rely on God's enabling mercy. But the very fact that we persevere is grounded in God's sovereign power at work in us. Luis just said it in his testimony. I went back this way, but God kept showing me, that's not right. He gave me the power to change. You see, the therefore shows us, and therefore, my beloved, he says that therefore shows us it's not only possible, but expected that we continually work out salvation. Our salvation and corresponding justification in Christ is the supernatural work of God. And when we talk about justification, we're talking about being accepted by God. But when we're talking about sanctification, we're talking about being changed by God. So He changes. He changes our desires. He changes our hopes. He changes our ambitions what Paul is talking about here is that God is at work in us by grace to change us in a very different way than he changes us in justification but we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this work now why is this fear and trembling why is it with fear and trembling well what's the context of this verse and here's Paul in prison writing and he just finishes talking about how every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that this Jesus who rules everything, who's created everything. He says, Both fear and trembling are proper reactions to the reality and the awareness of God's greatness and our own spiritual weakness in the face of temptation. These words speak of a healthy fear of offending our Father and His call for us to take responsibility to do what's right in His eyes. It's not a fear of eternal doom but that awesome realization that motivates a person to pursue a life of righteousness for the, for the face of a loving God. Fully aware he knows not only our outward actions but also our inward motives. So you can see the fear and trembling is because there is such much at stake here in our following the Lord and our obedience to him. You know, when I... I guess some point in time in my Christian walk I just thought that you know God would just carry me up on the wings of his strength and I didn't really have to face any hardship I didn't really have to face any difficult decisions or work through the difficulty of something but that's that doesn't happen. <laughs> I just say that that does not happen very often it does happen occasionally but it, but for the most part it doesn't happen. Then the verse 14 it says, or 13 for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure you've got this both and situation here both you're to work out your salvation and God is at work it's not an either or it's a both and situation Um, I I think about it like this I kept trying to come up with a sports analogy Um, and none of them fit really well uh, because you're you're not guaranteed in sports you're going to win. I mean you can be down in the fourth the very end of the game and you can, you can have your team huddle up and say this is what we need to do to win and everybody's going to believe. But but there's no really necessarily any outside thing at work, right? The best example I come up with was Lazarus when he was dead and buried. And Jesus said Lazarus, come forth. And I thought, Lazarus, he, he didn't just rise up like a ghost and walk out of the tomb. There was something in him that said, yes, I'm going to stand up. And so he stood up on his strength, right? His heart started pumping again. The brain act reactivated. Stand up. Walk. And that's the best way I can come up with it. You know, what what the does, Bible doesn't speak about it, but what caused Lazarus to stand and walk? Well, God called him. Well, God's called you to stand and walk. And so I think, you know, it maybe that particular story emphasizes the work of God in the midst of it. And that's important, but, but Lazarus had a part of this too, right? He had to stand up and walk out. Those who study the, the commands of Scripture realize that they are built on present realities of who we are in Christ. The Word of God does not command us to do something before it says that we are that something. Rather, it tells us we are something before it tells us to be or to do something. For example, we are not commanded to be holy as if we are not, in reality, already set apart unto God as holy. So God can say, be holy, because in His view, He has made you holy already. He never commands you to be or do something until he's already said you are that something. So when he says work out your salvation, it's because he's already guaranteed your salvation is going to be worked out. Think about it. Paul's command to work out your salvation means that the great impossibility must now be possible. We must realize that since God is working in us, the final outcome is no hopeless task to which we give ourselves. It's no fruitless beating of the air. Whatever energy we feel to pursue God and whatever inclination we have to believe in Him more, we should look upon it as a sign of God's active work and pleasure to help us grow. Whenever you have an inclination, oh, I'm going to study my Bible. I'm going to write a letter to a friend to encourage them. I'm going to serve someone. You can can be sure that's God at work to cause that to come about. Our desire to pursue godliness is... The indication that God is working both willingly and with power. And then this is the interesting thing. For his good pleasure. God takes great delight in seeing your life come in line with his command and his pronouncement of who you are, that Christ might be glorified. Augustine says, We are to work with fear and trembling so that we will not, by attributing the good working to ourselves be elated by the good works as if they were our own. So even though we are aware that it is we who work out our salvation by trembling, we must also know it is God who moves us to do so and gives us the strength to persevere. This paradox of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty is also described in other verses, 1 Corinthians fifteen ten. By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me. You see it? Both these things are active at work. Colossians 1.29 And for this purpose, to present every man complete in Christ. It's the purpose. I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. I labor according to his power at work within me. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. In some mighty way, God has called us to enter into this working out of salvation. Clearly, this is not an either us or God situation. God's sovereignty and sanctification does not remove our obligation to work out our salvation. It enables it. It makes it possible God's sovereign work in us is our only hope that we will, in fact, actually press on to maturity. God's working and willing in us does not make our working pointless. It makes our working possible. And I'll just add, this is the same reason that we pray. You've heard it. Why should I pray if God already knows what he's going to do? Well, my friends, (laughs) it's not an either-or situation. It's a both-and situation. God's at work. Therefore, we pray with confidence. It's not, we're not asking someone who's powerless to make something change. We're asking the one who holds all things in his hand. It should encourage us to pray, knowing that God is already at work. We obey and rework. It's our act and our choice. But beneath our doing and our willing is God giving the willing and God giving the doing. It really is both our work and his gift. Practically speaking, this truth gives us hope and confidence that in fear and trembling we can make progress in the Christian life. And that's a quick question. Are you making progress in the Christian life? You know, what steps are you taking to strengthen the faith that God's giving you? you, know, how, how are you what steps are you taking to glorify the Christ? We are God's holy children by virtue of our union with Christ, the Holy Spirit, and according to the Father's will. We already possess the resources we need to work out our salvation. Okay. All right. We want to verse fourteen. Okay. Again, you think of the postmodern society we live in and of all the possible commands that could be given. I think about the Ten Commandments and how God gave these Ten Commandments to rule a nation. And they weren't necessarily the ten that I would have picked. And then there's verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I wanted to find a way to Talk to you about this—that it wouldn't affect modern ears. But again, I, I couldn't really find one. this is as this is as pure and simple as it comes. It's been minutes since I broke that command. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's just go word by word. Do okay. Everything that everything that you every act you perform every moment in time that you are and you are existing and you're doing, this is what it applies to. All things. Oh, I wish that we could set the bar at some things. But no, it says, because with some things, we could probably succeed occasionally. But it says all things, meaning all activities without exception. This cries out for divine strength. because this is too difficult for humans to do without fail we need supernatural assistance and without, we know what the word without means it means none of what follows should be a part of what we're doing in all things so grumbling anybody know what grumbling means? anybody don't know what grumbling (laughs) thank you grumbling It's it's an audible expression of undeserved dissatisfaction so we grumble. We don't like what somebody said. We disagree with it, so we grumble. It's verbal discontent. It's murmuring against men or against God, but in this case it's mainly against men. It's, it's used to show our discontent. It's used to complain to others. We're complaining. We're arguing. We're grumbling. And then disputing. Well, disputing probably has a technical uh, definition, but it's an inner reasoning and it's a questioning mind and an arrogant spirit that says, I'm right and you're wrong and I'm going to point this out to you. You know, it's, it's calling into question and arguing and disrupting the body of Christ. So we're to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now I'll give you five seconds to think about your life. <laughs> How are we doing? And why is this one of these commands? Why is this so important? Is this simply polishing the silverware of our heart? Or is this fundamental, transformational type stuff? I think it's more transformational than it is polishing the surface. Because how do you? How do you live a life without grumbling or disputing or complaining or arguing? This is fundamental. This is transformational at the very heart of who we are. We—I like to dispute things. I, I was raised by a family of arguers. I mean, that's what we did. We argued, and we thought it was a good, a healthy thing. It sharpened our read. Lord, explain this to me. There's that old poem that says, to dwell above with saints we love, that will be grace and glory. But to live below with saints we know. Now that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. That was anonymous. <laughs> anonymous. <laughs> yeah, G-E. Anonymous. Grumbling. Here's the best I can come up with. Grumbling is evidence of a puny faith. Amidst the gracious providence of God in our lives. I just want you to think, every time you grumble, puny faith. Puny faith at work here. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Puny faith at work. Just, just let your mind and your spirit tell you that's puny. Puny faith dishonors God. It belittles his sovereignty and his wisdom and his goodness. And what would be a Sunday morning message without Charles Spurgeon? He gives us an option. I'll put on my best British (laughs) act He says, if we complained less and praised more, we should be happier. And God would be more glorified. Let us daily praise God for common mercies common as we frequently call them and yet so priceless that when deprived of them we are ready to perish let God let, let us bless God for the eyes which we have behold the sun for the health and strength to walk abroad for the bread we eat for the raiment we wear let us praise him that we are not cast out among the hopeless or confined amongst the guilty let us thank him for liberty for friends for family associations and for comforts. So let us praise him In fact, for everything which we receive from his bountiful hand, for we deserve little, yet we are most plenteous in doubt. But, beloved, the sweetest and loudest note of our songs of praise should be of redeeming love. God's redeeming acts towards his chosen are forever the favorite themes of their praise. If we know what redemption means, let us not withhold our sonnets of thanksgiving. We have been redeemed from the power of our corruptions, uplifted from the depth of sin in which we are naturally plunged. We have been led to the cross of Christ. Our shackles of guilt have been broken off. We are no longer slaves, but children of the living God and can foresee the time when we shall be presented before the throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Even now, by faith, we wave the palm branch and wrap ourselves about the fair linen, which is to be our everlasting array. And shall we not unceasingly give thanks to the Lord, our Redeemer? Child of God, can you remain silent? Awake, awake, ye inheritors of glory, and lead your captivity captive as ye cry with David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. You know, Spurgeon is right. He says there's got to be this shift from grumbling and complaining to giving thanks and praise to God. It's not just that I can tell you to stop grumbling and complaining, put a cap on it. I've got to give you something else that you can do. And you can praise the Lord. You can give thanks to Him. And that's why this is so fundamental, because at the very base of our heart, at the very base of our soul, this is where it springs forth, right? At that point, there has to be a transformation. Yes, if our faith is strong to believe these things, we will not grumble. That's the whole promise. Work out your salvation because it is God at work within you for his good pleasure. Do you think God wants you to grumble? With puny faith? (laughs) No. That's not God's intent at all. Be strong in the Lord. That's what he says. Let us pray to be glad in the Lord and willing to receive from His hand all He designs for our holiness. Then, as Paul says in the next verse, if we avoid the grumbling which obscures the light of God's gracious providence, we will be as lights in the world. Verse 15 that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Blameless. Blameless. Who wants to be blameless? Anybody? Yeah, we got one, two, all right. I think we all want to be blameless. Faultless, without defect. It describes not being able to find fault in something or someone. And innocent, that which is without mixture or figurative picturing one who is guileless or guiltless. Innocent. Paul wants us to be blameless in the sight of others and guileless in our own hearts. Our hearts are not to have the blemishes of the mixed motives of good and evil as we serve as God's ambassadors in this world we are to be distinctly different from the culture in which we live that is so hostile toward the gospel of Christ. Paul teaches us that if we fall into murmuring, gossiping, arguing or complaining, we will lose our separate identity that we are in fact God's children. But if we choose to walk in humility, we will shine as lights in this crooked and twisted world, which is so evident when we compare it against the plumb line of God's word. You know, I had the opportunity to talk to Carla just for a minute, and Carla, it really was a test. <laughs> I thought, you passed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Carla, Carla has taken on responsibility at, at the high school for the singing valentines. She's project managing the singing valentines. And so what the deal was was that kids would buy a singing valentine, which means one of the choir members would take a, a fresh carnation and a poem, and one of six songs that, that they would pick out, and they would present it to another high school student on, at school on Friday during first and second period and sing to them and give them the Valentine and the Carnation. She had 950 of these. And to organize the singers and the distribution and the Carnations, and all this was coming down on Thursday preparation, and Friday or Friday morning, Valentine's Day, she knew what going to happen. Well, you know what happened on Wednesday <laughs> Thursday <laughs> and Friday? And so her whole weekend has just been flipped upside down. In fact, we're having church at her house here this morning. And she was going to go to see her mom yesterday and all this to be a Friday. And this mom was on Saturday night, and church is on Sunday. And mm-hmm. <laughs> so I asked her, how's it going? And she looked at me and she laughed. And she said, you know, I'm just learning to be a good project manager. <laughs> and I was saying, yes. There wasn't any grumbling or complaining at all in you, Carla. You passed the <laughs> test. <laughs> but isn't that. In think about it. I can't identify. Them.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> this, this is for you, Greg. Right? And then there's Richard. <laughs> but think about this. I'm just, I'm just reading the words of this letter. The man was in prison. Mm-hmm. And the next verse is going to show his, his desire for these people. Carly, you're going to shine as a light at the high school tomorrow. Hallelujah! You're going to be a light. You're going to be a light, and they're going to. I mean, I've learned. I've learned that whenever you see something that goes dire- directly against the human nature, you can say that person is the believer. I'm, I'm sure. And may not be every case, but most of the time, somebody who goes against the grain of society like that is a believer. They've got God working in them, which gives them the strength to do this. Now, let's move on. Consider the emphasis in Scripture given to light. Light. With a focus both on God and His people. For God, shining light describes His glory and purity, His majesty and goodness. It is remarkable for us to consider then that God's original plan for calling people to Himself was to make them His lights in the world. You know, God is is referred as light many times, and and the beauty and the glory of light and the majesty of it. To think that God would also use that term to describe us. You know, what's at work here? But that's what Jesus says in Matthew 5 We are the lights of the world. The body of Christ was called out of darkness and given the work of reflecting the splendor and purity of the Lord to all creation. Paul explains that we shine as lights. The Father has made us to be in Christ as we serve others without grumbling or disputing. Working out our salvation in fear and trembling is no easy task, especially when we must deal with people and decisions with which we do not always understand or agree not always easy to do this or other things that happen. We are constantly tempted to complain and to grumble, yet such behavior does not show forth the peace and righteousness of God. You know our culture of skepticism loves to blame and criticize others. I mean nothing can happen without somebody wanting to know who's to blame, who's going to be criticized, whose fault was this. So if you can live in in our world and not fall into this snare of grumbling, the snare of disputing, you will shine as a light remember there are two kinds of Christians, those who shine and those who whine now for those non-English speakers or whine is is another word for um, for w-h-i-n-e for complaining are you letting shine through you to others If not, conquer complaining, avoid arguing, regain rejoicing. Trust Jesus and follow his commands. Repent when you fail. Let the glory of God shine through you. Okay. I want to get through verse 18, so let's go quickly here. Verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Holding fast means hold your provision, position, hold your gaze, hold on in possession. In 1 Timothy 4, it's translated, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. In Acts 3, it's translated, he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Here it's holding fast to the word of life. The idea is holding to the word, clinging to it, and continuing to believe it. Never leaving the word of life, but staying with it. Say this with me. The word of life. The word word of of life. The word of life. Does this promise too much? It's the words of life. This is a beautiful name for the scripture, and here it refers to the gospel, which when believed produces spiritual and eternal life in the beholder. It is the word which is life and which gives life. Feed yourself daily with this word. Cherish it. Hold fast to it. Now, Paul, when he said, run in vain or labor in vain wasn't saying that his salvation depended on what happened to the Philippians whether they trusted him or not but all Christians do not work, equally work out their salvation some because they are converted late in life or because they devote less attention to their sanctification are saved only through fire <coughs> resting on Jesus alone they enter heaven but do not receive the same divine commendation as those who passionately work for the Lord's kingdom Paul sought a ministry worthy of God's highest commendation. He did not want to build a ministry with wood or straw whose results would fail with the test of fire. Paul appeals to their love for him exhorting them to act in such a way as to make him confident of his own reward. In his love for them he appeals to them to also hold fast to the word. We too when we cling to the gospel and fulfill our calling will in God also greatly encourage those who minister to us. Yeah, that's a lot of words. What am I thinking there? When when each of you trust God, when each of you go about your life without grumbling or complaining, when each, each of you shine his lights in the dark and midst of the world, it brings Greg and Preston and I great, great joy. And what Paul Paul is playing upon that, he's he's saying. hold fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, in other words, the day of judgment, the day of Christ is, is the shorthand for the day of the Christ's return and of judgment. I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. He was saying, you hold fast to the word so my ministry will not be null and void. He's encouraging them and he's, and he's, he's actually calling them to be motivated by love and by his love for them. But when we think of Christ's love for us, it should motivate us then to follow after Christ. So he he, he talks from the beginning of work out your salvation fear and trembling because of the, the position of Christ. But then he goes on, and now he brings it down to this intimate personal level. When each one, of, when any one of you obeys the word of God, it encourages every everyone else. When each, any, anyone, with like this whole story about with Carla, did that encourage you? Mm-hmm. Each it, that encouraged each one of us, because Carla wants to shine as a light at Lee'sville High School, and it's the same way with each one. When each one of you says no to sin and yes to God, it encourages the rest of us. There is this. Community that Paul speaks of here—that's so vital. As a community, how are we moving towards this sort of life? Verse seventeen: Even if I be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am <coughs> glad and rejoice with you all. And verse eighteen: Likewise, you should—you also should be glad and rejoice with me so here in prison Paul gets really personal he's saying that even if he did expect it to be released from imprisonment he realized that he may not be I mean he may be killed and he realized he he wanted to be released he thought he was going to be released but he understood that he may not be released he may be killed instead and so what does he say He is ready to be poured out as a drink offering. In the Old Covenant, the drink offering was the last thing offered. There was a bread offering and a burnt offering and a drink offering. And it was poured over the burning sacrifice to make it complete and fulfill the command of God to make it acceptable to God. The wine would vaporize when it hit the heat and release this steam. You can imagine You've got this fire, you've got this sacrifice, roasting, burning, whatever, being consumed by the fire and you pour this wine out on it and it releases this steam. And the the manifestation of this steam was to point them as this was a a fragrant offering up to God. That's what Paul was saying. By describing himself as a drink offering, Paul committed that he would do (coughs) whatever it took to make their service worthy in the Lord's eyes. His love for them meant he was willing even to be set ablaze as a sacrifice to God. Paul asked the church to join in this love and rejoice together in God's plan. I think Paul was asking us that this morning. Paul's asking, not the Philippians, he's asking the Gateway Christian Fellowship he's asking us will, will you will you pursue your salvation like this so I just want you to bow your heads I'm going to read a couple of questions Kathy, I don't know whether you've got another song I bow your heads I'm going to read a couple of questions Uh I want you to think about how you'd answer these not to me but how you'd answer these to the Lord who has given us these uh, this, this teaching, these commands, these instructions. They're not guidelines, they are they're commands to be fulfilled. And because God's at work He's suspects. He knows that the Spirit will accomplish everything that He sent it forth to do. His Word will accomplish what is the task that's been given. This is what God wants to see happen in us. Question number one, have you been working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Have you? Have you been coasting? Have you forgotten that as God who is at work within you for his own pleasure. For his pleasure. Have you forgotten that it's God who is at work within you for his own pleasure? Are you pursuing a life of humility or have you fallen into grumbling and disputing with others? Are you pursuing a life of humility with the example being the Lord Jesus himself or have you fallen into grumbling and disputing with others fourth question are you shining as a light to a crooked and twisted generation or is there a basket over your lamp Are you shining as a light to a crooked and twisted generation? And last question. Are you glad and rejoicing with the Apostle in the wisdom and plan of God? Are you glad and rejoicing with the Apostle in the wisdom and plan of God?